Hello, and welcome to the Sola Gratia Sermons Podcast. I'm so glad that you decided to drop in today. I pray that you enjoy this sermon and that God, through His Word, convicts you, encourages you, and edifies you. I also pray that this sermon increases your knowledge of God and grows your love for Him and His Scripture. God bless you and keep you. Soli Deo Gloria. I'd like you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 John chapter 2. We'll be continuing in our uh, verse-by-verse expository walkthrough of this wonderful epistle from the Apostle John. And uh, we made it through chapter 1. We did it. Good job. <laughs> and so here we are starting chapter 2. Now I will uh, point out to you that chapter 2 is almost three times as long as chapter 1. So um, I won't get through it in two sermons, sorry. (laughs) So we'll be here for a little bit, but there is so much wonderful goodness in uh, this epistle, and I'm so excited to continue through it with you all. Uh, We'll be working through the first three verses this morning, so if you uh, go ahead and get turned there, 1 John chapter 2. As we open up here, there is is much confusion in the world. Um, You all are well aware of that, I'm sure. Today, indeed, uh, even in the professing evangelical church, there is much confusion regarding many of the foundational truths of the Christian faith. What is justification? What is the atonement? What did Christ actually accomplish? What is the gospel? Much confusion. We have false teachers who have taught and continue to teach that if you believe that Jesus was punished for our sins, then that is a deplorable thing, and that pushes some sort of idea of divine child abuse. You'll hear that word thrown around from time to time today, that uh, that can't be what happened because that would be child abuse from the father to the son. These are false claims. And I've heard of personal conversations between my pastor and individuals who had told him, well, I don't really believe in a gospel that requires an atonement. I don't really want to believe in that. Really? Well, then you don't believe in the gospel of the Bible. Plain and simple. And you don't understand the depth of our sin and the need for Christ's sacrifice. You're missing a foundational and beautiful point of why Jesus, God the Son, condescended in the first place and what he accomplished during his own incarnation and on that cross for our sins. Amen? You're missing it. If you deny the need for an atonement for sin, then you deny what this passage clearly teaches. Here at the beginning of 1 John chapter 2, that we need an advocate. We need propitiation. And so... In this chapter 2, we'll see that John moves into some incredible truths. We see, once again, Trinitarian language being used. The Father and the Son and the Spirit will be addressed as well later. And John also gets very theological once again. I think I like to think of a John, as, John as a bit of a nerd like myself. And he gets very theological and, and uh, explains our need for an advocate and for propitiation and the fact that those things are only provided in and accomplished by Christ. Only in him. These beautiful truths that we as Christians must be clear on. 
We must be clear on these things. And as always, John provides the evidences of one who truly knows God versus the one who does not know God. True fellowship versus false fellowship, always contrasting between the unbeliever and the believer, darkness and light, back and forth, right? We've seen that. And so he gives some fruits of both sides and how you can identify them. So in this passage today, what we'll uncover is three simple things. One, uh, three things that believers have or three things that believers are not without. So number one, that believers have an advocate. And number two, that believers have propitiation. And number three, that believers have assurance. And that assurance is so beautiful, and we'll see that throughout this great epistle. So if you would, please stand with me in honor of the reading of the word. And we'll read this passage together. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we are so thankful for your word, that it is life to us, that it is conviction to us, that it leads us, guides us, corrects us, and makes us holy. Lord, I pray that you would help me to preach this message this morning, that you would give me strength and wisdom, that ears would be opened, that you would enlighten us with the wisdom of your word, that you would edify your body. Lord, please overshadow me with your cross and use me, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So you'll recall in chapter 1, the latter half of chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, as we discussed last time, that John tells his readers of the truth of the message of God. The message of God. That message of the gospel, which he and the other apostles have proclaimed throughout the land, which continues to spread in the ministry of Paul and, and many others as well. They've proclaimed it, he says, that which they have seen, that which they have heard, and that which they have touched. They've handled the risen Christ. And he spoke also of the character of God, that he is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And in doing so, he lays the groundwork to explain the prerequisite, if you will, for fellowship with God. And also the fruits that show the proof of that fellowship, whether authentic or false, right? In chapter 1, verses 6, 8, and 10, if you remember when we went over that, these verses refer to false professors. These are pretenders, those who claim to be a part of the fellowship. They claim to be a part of the body, but John says you're walking in darkness. While verses 7 and 9 in chapter 1 refer to true believers, those who are walking in the light, those who are broken over their sin, who are humbled 
And verse 9 could also be taken as a general call out to those who are lost. So we see this contrast made between those who have true fellowship with God and those who claim to have fellowship with God but are false. And this would include, of course, the false teachers of that day, the Gnostics and so on and so forth. This back and forth contrast, which we'll continue to see throughout this book, including in chapter 2. So we'll see here that Christ alone is our advocate. He's our only hope. Amen? The only one who is an advocate. So that's our first point, that believers have an advocate. He starts in verse 1. Uh, very loving language, my little children. Once again, affirming that John's audience is what? Believers. He's speaking to those who are followers of Christ. And he speaks to them with a great sense of care. This word has loving affection for them. And he says, these things, I'm writing these things to you. Well, what things? Well, everything that preceded this passage, right? Everything that came before, explaining what it means to have true fellowship. What are the fruits of the one who truly belongs to God? One who walks in the light, who lives a life of confession with a contrite heart, right? Also, what a false believer looks like, who John says is a liar, who walks in darkness, who is self-deceived and denies their own sin, These are the things that he's writing to you. These things I write to you. Why? So that you may not sin. It's one of his main purposes for writing. We have a purpose statement here. John was, of course, like we said, responding to the heretics and the false teachers of that day. The Gnostics who taught falsities regarding the nature of Christ and who he was and false ideas of fellowship with God. He was combating and responding to them, of course. But he, he states along with this that his primary purpose was to instruct them and to warn his readers against committing the same sin as the heretics. Warning them. Instructing. He's a teacher. He says, so that you may not sin. What in the world are you getting at, John? Is John teaching some sort of sinless perfectionism here that we can attain here on this earth, that we can be free of all sin? Well, of course not. That is heresy. (laughs) You will not be free of sin on this earth. So that's not what John is saying. Certainly not. Paul makes clear in Romans 7 that we continue to sin until death. You recall the battle that Paul deals with. I I do the things that I don't want to do, and the very thing that I don't want to do, I keep doing it. I keep failing, and I keep falling. Have you ever felt like that? What is wrong with me? (laughs) We know this is true. We already saw that true Christians Verse 9 of chapter 1, continually acknowledge and confess their sin. So, of course, we still sin. And we confess it, we acknowledge it. So, what is being said here is that true believers respond to God's mercy with a life of obedience, right? Not perfection, it's not possible this side of heaven but rather an exhortation that they progress 
in some way. Progress in godliness and walk in the light. That's in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And again in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Those who are walking in the light, growing in holiness. This is a, an expectation, the fruit of a true believer. Which leads to our main point in verse 1. The fact that we have an advocate with the Father. We are not sinless perfectionists. We still sin and we have an advocate. This is our hope. Who is this advocate? Of course, it is none other than Jesus Christ alone. No one else. Not only who, but why. Why do we need an advocate? How is he our advocate? We have to understand this. Well, firstly, this word advocate, the Greek word here is parakletos. Parakletos. And if you've ever heard the word paraclete, or if you're familiar with that, it's actually the same word that Jesus ascribes to the Holy Spirit. He says, I am leaving you, but I will send to you another. I will send you the helper, the paraclete. And so Jesus refers to, is, Jesus is referred to here in a, a similar way as the parakletos, the advocate. The sinner in darkness it's in false fellowship that is dead in trespasses says, well, I don't need a helper. I don't need the help of God. I have no sin. I'm fine. <laughs> I've heard that those very words out of the mouths of, of people saying, God and me, we're fine. We're good. Really? Are you? <laughs> and they deny their own sin. I don't need help. And scripture says that person is a self-deceived liar and God's word is not in them. No, we need an advocate. We need the helper. It is the one, however, who has been changed by God, who has been given a new heart, who's been born again, made into a new creation, who understands their need for help. Right? Do you remember when God changed your heart? From a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And you recognized your sin. And the depth of your need for a savior. They understand the depth of their own depravity. And the depth of their own sin. That they are bankrupt. And have nothing to offer God. Nothing but the sin that made their salvation necessary. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards said that. You, ought, you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. Amen? Nothing do I offer him but filthy rags. This is the person who's been truly changed by God. They understand they need help. A modern concept of this term for advocate would be the thinking of a defense attorney. In the courtroom scene, the one who pleads the case before the judge and says, Your Honor, I submit to you that this person is not guilty. And they'll provide the arguments why or why not, right? In a judicial sense, though, of course, we know that we are guilty. Amen? You know your own sin. We are guilty. But as uh, Ray Comfort always says, he's a, he's a great evangelist. Uh, if you've heard of Living Waters Ministries and the Way of the Master, I love how he always approaches people. And he gives this example, and he always says, the judge cannot let a guilty lawbreaker go. That would be unjust, right? 
That judge we would call unjust for letting the guilty one go. But the advocate says someone has paid his fine. Someone has paid it in full. Therefore, yes, you are guilty. You are. But your fine has been paid. You're free to go. And so this is not obviously an inherent righteousness. I am not righteous in and of myself. But this is a judicial declaration. Declaring you justified. Righteous. And yet it's not your own righteousness. It's an alien righteousness outside of yourself. The righteousness of Christ. Justified before a holy God. We owe a sin debt against an infinitely holy God that we could never pay. And then Jesus steps in as the ultimate advocate on behalf of believers and pays their fine in full by the blood of his cross. That's what we read in Colossians 1 last week. And taking the full wrath of God for every sin committed by the believer, Jesus said, to tell us die, it is finished. All of it. And this, this courtroom illustration kind of helps us understand the question of why. Why do we need an advocate? Why do I need that? Well, I think it's obvious, right? Ephesians 2, we were all born dead in sins and trespasses. We were at enmity with God, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived all of us Romans 5 verse 10 we were enemies of God enemies of God but what were reconciled to God through the death of his son this is why we need an advocate all of us by default are enemies of God we don't like to talk about that as often in the church nowadays but it's true that's what the Bible says you hear it in the modern evangelifish church, as I call it today, that, you know, God just, he misses you. He needs you. God does not need us. We need an advocate. We were reconciled through the death of his son, but by default, from birth, we're born dead in the sins of Adam. We're hostile to God. And we love our sin more than God. Until God changes you. A guilty sinner cannot stand before a holy God in judgment. And receive anything but what he deserves. What he has earned. And what have we earned? Romans 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. What else have we earned? Psalm chapter 1, what we just went over Wednesday night. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They will not stand. And Romans 3, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But there is one who is good. And he's our advocate. This is why we need an advocate. Those who stand before the holy God still dead in their sins with their filthy rags have no hope of escaping his wrath and holy judgment. 
But for those of us in Christ, we have an advocate. Amen? We have an advocate, a great high priest. And as John tells us here, and the whole of Scripture agrees, that advocate is none other than Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love how there's a the there, the righteous one. He is our advocate. And so as we stand before God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not our own, we see Romans 8 verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation. None. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. We can stop the sermon right there, but I have two more points. We need an advocate, and we have an advocate. Number two, we see that believers have propitiation. This is one of my favorite words in the New Testament. We read uh, verse two. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He himself, Christ, is the only one worthy to be an effective propitiation for sinners. No one else can accomplish this. We must understand what this word means, propitiation. A couple examples in scripture, Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In 1 John, just later in this book, chapter 4, verse 10, this is the God is love passage. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this word propitiation, it speaks of what? A sacrifice. It's a sacrifice made to God meant to take away the enmity brought by sin between the person and God. You see? It's an appeasing of wrath from a deity is what this word speaks of. It speaks of a turning away of wrath or even more so a, an absorption of wrath. A payment. And so in providing himself as the only perfect sacrifice and spotless lamb, Christ placates the wrath of God by taking that wrath upon himself and he makes payment in full. This is what we call substitutionary atonement. So if we accurately understand this word and the depth of it, propitiation, and the fact that that has been done, propitiation has been made, for those who believe, we see that there is no wrath remaining for them. There's none left for you if you are in Christ. He has taken it. So in understanding the depth of the meaning of this word and what it actually means, it sheds light on what can and cannot be meant by part B of this verse 2. All right, we have to make sure we understand it accurately. He says, the whole world. Well, firstly, we need to understand, if you didn't know this, that John actually uses this word rendered world in English at least 10 different ways in his writings. 
10, if not more. And I won't unpack all of them for you, of course, but the, he, he sometimes speaks of this world meaning the entire created order, right? Or sometimes it means the physical earth and or the celestial bodies in space. Sometimes it refers to Jews and Gentiles, meaning people of all kinds, Every kind of people. Or sometimes it means all unbelievers. Sometimes it means believers and unbelievers, depending on the context. Sometimes it means this evil world system under Satan. Many different uses of this word world. And so in the context, we must not find ourselves in a contradiction, right? Scripture has no contradictions. So in understanding the meaning of propitiation and the fact that the wrath of God has been completely appeased for all those who believe, all those whom verse 1 says Christ is their advocate before the Father, this speaks of his high priestly role. Scripture says that he is interceding for those for whom he died on behalf of them in front of the Father. Then we know, so if we know all those things, then we know that this cannot mean that Christ propitiated or appeased wrath for the sins of all humanity, every single individual who has ever lived. It can't be the meaning because the logical conclusion of that, you must follow it, is that if wrath, all wrath is placated and there is none remaining for all the people for whom he died. And if you say that is all people everywhere throughout all time, welcome to universalism. (laughs) That's where you end up. Everyone is saved if he's propitiated the wrath of God for every single human who has ever lived, right? You see that? This is not what scripture teaches, though. Clearly, we know that there will be many who die in their sins. Many. And you also run into the issue of what would be called a a double jeopardy situation, where a person is dying and going to hell and paying for their sins eternally, but Christ also died for their sins on the cross. That would make God unjust. Payment for the same sins twice. So we know this is not the case. No. He died for all those who would ever believe. Amen. R.C. Sproul puts it this way in his um, study notes on this passage regarding the whole world. Christ's sacrifice is not only sufficient for John and his immediate community or his audience, But it is valid anywhere in the world for those who believe. This sacrifice requires no addition or supplement. This verse does not and cannot mean that the Lord intended for the atonement to pay for the sins of all people without exception. Rather, it affirms that there is only one sacrifice, one only, available for any sinner, namely the sacrifice of Christ. This sacrifice is therefore effectual for all who believe. Amen. So then to affirm what what Sproul said here, we must understand this usage of world in this context to refer simply to Jews and Gentiles. Right. Meaning all kinds of people without distinction, not without exception. For God shows no partiality. Right. It's not just the rich that are saved, not just Americans that are saved. It's not just a certain ethnicity that are saved. All kinds of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Amen? And praise God that we as believers have an advocate who has made propitiation. 
And so then we move on to number three, that believers have assurance. Assurance. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. By this. Well, by what? John goes on to give us assurance here and to discuss the contrasting fruits, once again, between believers and unbelievers. He says, by this, if we, right? This is actually the same type of language used by the Lord Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And let's not forget the very next verse. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. What word do you think is used there? The paraclete of the helper. So praise God that we do not do this alone. Amen? I've said that many times, and I hope you get it. We don't do this alone. We, get it. we do it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Are you able to love the, the law of God and to obey him and to serve him and to fervently desire to seek after him apart from the help of the Holy Spirit? Of course not. So this, again, is not teaching some sort of self-righteousness or sinless perfectionism, for we know that is impossible. But we do know that the fruit produced by the true believer will be that they desire to obey God. They desire to please him, right? You didn't used to desire that, did you? And now you do. What changed? The work of God. While believers still sin until they are glorified, of course we still sin. The overall orientation or the bent of their life, if you will, is not towards sin, but away from sin and towards God. Right? We grow in holiness and grow in love for our Father who has saved us. We see this fruit and this evidence in the Psalms, all throughout them. I'll just read these couple verses in Psalm chapter 1 that we just studied on Wednesday night, verse 2 and 3. But his delight, speaking of the blessed man, the righteous man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. This is the one who loves God. And again, in Psalm 119, he focuses so much on the law of God, the word of God, how much I love it. Psalm 119, verses, uh, several verses in 18, he says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Wondrous things. And verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. When was the last time we said that? <laughs> How I love your law. It is my meditation all the day, David says. And in verse 165 of Psalm 119, great peace have those who love your law and nothing can make them stumble. Great peace comes from loving the word of God. So the question naturally arises, do you think this way? Do we think this way? Have you truly come to know him, as verse 3 says? By this, we know that we have come 
to know him? Do you desire to behold God and his wondrous things, as that psalm just said? Do you love his law and his righteousness and desire to obey it? Do you meditate on his law and his word? The psalmist told us that those who do these things and desire these things have what? Grace, great peace. Great peace. This is our assurance. Believers have assurance. These are the fruits of a true believer. Remember the context of what we just covered in chapter 1. That those who have true fellowship with God walk what? In the light. Not in the darkness. And those who walk in the light, they acknowledge their sin. They're broken over it. They humbly confess their sins to God. Having what? The peace and assurance that he is faithful and just to forgive them of their sins and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. This is our assurance as believers. Do you think this way? Have you truly been changed by God? Do you know him and truly desire to obey him and submit to his word? If yes, then take heart, believer. Take heart. You would not desire these things unless God had changed your heart first. These are fruits, evidences that we truly belong to God. Take heart if you desire these things. If God had not changed your heart, you would still be in darkness and you would still be dead in your sins and trespasses. You would still love your sin. But he's changed you. Remember, we do not do these things and think this way to be saved. But rather, we do and think this way because we are saved. Right? This is our wonderful assurance as believers that because we have come to know him, as this verse says, we follow him, we submit to him and his word. We produce good fruits. But not only that, once again, praise God, we don't do it alone. He helps us to produce these fruits all along the way of sanctification. Remember, you would not desire such things unless God had graciously chosen to give you a new heart. We have assurance as believers. Ultimately, it is rooted in the finished work of Christ. In closing here, John is going to go on into many, many more details in the remainder of chapter 2, describing more evidence and fruits and distinguishing between believers and unbelievers, darkness and light. He's going to talk about not loving the world. He's going to warn of antichrists that are to come and that have already come and what it means to be true children of God. There's a lot of depth that he's going to cover here. And in doing so, I pray that God's word is going to continue to convict and to show us the truth of what it means to be one that is truly in communion and fellowship with God. That should be our prayer, right? To grow in holiness and to examine ourselves. This book will also continue to give us as believers great assurance. That's my hope for you. We see that in what we cover today. What an incredible truth that in Christ we have the one who is the perfect and only mediator between God and men. The one 
who is Christ, in whom we have an advocate, the righteous, that he himself laid his life down as a propitiation for our sins. So our assurance comes in part from the fact that we have been changed from the inside out and that our desires have changed. Yes, but ultimately our assurance comes from the fact of who Christ is and what he has done, what he has accomplished. Our assurance is rooted in the perfect Savior who has purchased the salvation of his people. He accomplished it and he gives it freely as a gift. Amen? He has done it. And he is the one who gave us those new desires in the first place. He gave you those new desires. Do we thank him for that often? I need to. We see here at at this beginning of chapter 2, such beautiful, essential truths to the gospel itself. I hope you see that. We see that although we still fail and we fall and we sin, we have an advocate, a great high priest who, Scripture says, intercedes on our behalf. And this great high priest laid down his life as a ransom for many, as the propitiation so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are united to him by grace, through faith, alone. If you are in Christ, you have no condemnation. Praise God for that. Mm. There was a time when we were all dead. You were dead in your sins and trespasses with no hope and at enmity with God, Ephesians 2. And then at the right time, Scripture says, God saved us. And it says he made us alive in Christ. He raised you to walk in new life, no longer dead in the kingdom of darkness. He did that. There is no other advocate. No other propitiation will suffice. There is salvation in no other name. And the call of the gospel, we need to be reminded of it often, just as, even as Christians. The call of the gospel is to repent. It's to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ and live. In him alone is life. All we have is filthy rags. Trust in Christ alone and his finished work on the cross. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. The beautiful truth of the gospel. If you are here today under the sound of my voice and God through his word is convicting you of sin and calling you to bow the knee and to trust him, and opening your eyes to the truth of his gospel, do not delay. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Or maybe you're just here today and you simply have sin in your life that you need to repent of and, and turn it over to God. Maybe you need to what, do what verse 9 and 10 says in chapter 1 and just confess today. And seek the cleansing peace of God. We all need to do that often. Or maybe you just need to bow in worship and thank him for what he has done. 
We can never do that enough for what he's done in your life. We can never have too much gratitude towards God who has given us all things, all things in Christ. Have you truly come to know him? Are you at peace with God? That's the question. I'll be here and the altars are open. If you need prayer, you just need to praise God or worship. Or if you need to talk to me about salvation, today is the day. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we are humbled by your word. There is not enough depth of gratitude that we could express for the fact that Christ has accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished for our salvation. That he is the advocate, the righteous one who has made propitiation on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for the assurance that we have in Christ that we cannot contribute to our salvation, that he has given it to us by his grace as a gift. Lord God, thank you for the assurance that we have that you hold on to us, Father, that you make us holy, that you sanctify us, and that you will lose not one of your sheep. God, we praise you for your word, that you have not left us in the darkness, but you have pulled us into the kingdom of light and changed us forever. And we look forward to that beautiful day when we will see you face to face and worship and enjoy you forever. Oh God, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know you, that your word has gone out in conviction and that you would change hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.